You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This has so far been a scorching hot summer throughout much of the world. That's got everyone packing a bag for a quick getaway. We'll talk to analysts who say, enjoy it while you can. And if sports is your thing, a new cricket league in the U.S. could prove to be wildly popular. It's only just launched, and it's already garnered a huge following. And as hot as it's been, you really do need to stay hydrated. But what's in that diet soda or sugar-free coffee? We'll drink in the latest health guidance on artificial sweeteners from the World Health Organization. Let's get started, though, with a trip to the Arctic. A coalition of environmental organizations is endorsing President Biden's run for re-election. It also comes as the president is facing criticism for recent environmental decisions, like approving oil drilling projects on protected lands in Arctic Alaska. At the league's annual Capitol Dinner in Washington, D.C., President Biden said he knows his administration has more to do on the environment. Getting to 100 percent clean energy by 2035. Moving to all electric vehicles in the future made in America. Building 500,000 EV charging stations from coast to coast. Conserving 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. But as we are about to learn, drilling in the Arctic is no small endeavor. Let's find out more with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning, who covers energy and commodities, and he joins us now. Now, Liam, uh, you had mentioned in your column that someone described to you that drilling for oil in the Arctic is like drilling on the moon. Tell me about that. Well, you you certainly appreciate that when you actually go to the north slope of Alaska. Um, So the way I went was I I flew into Anchorage and then took another flight um, two hours north. Um, It's a pretty epic commute for the oil workers who head that way. You fly past Denali uh, over the Alaskan interior and then over the Brooks Range, which is kind of where the Arctic Circle starts. And so the, the trees end and you come out on the other side of the Brooks Range and you're, you're met with this, um, you know, quite unique flat landscape of, uh, you know, lots of snow and ice, um, uh, tundra, um, strange polygonal pools that form uh, on the surface. Uh, and then as you get closer to the coast, which is where the oil fields are, you begin to spot these small kind of outposts of um, industrial activity um although they're on land they they what they look like to me was really almost like an archipelago of islands they're they they're, they're man-made gravel pads where where work takes place where the rigs operate um uh but there there there's some gravel roads there but they're almost they're, they're largely cut off and i would say when when that oil um when that oil man described it as drilling for oil on the moon I mean, in some ways, he did mean that, that the landscape is, is very odd and, you know, it's very cold, obviously, particularly during winter. Um, but I think what he was really getting at was just how remote it feels. And, and when you're there, you get this sense that you're quite cut off from the outside world. You, spending time up there, have been able to file several columns for the Bloomberg Terminal about some of your experiences. And it's all based on climate change and geopolitics changing the strategic landscape of the high north. So how is this now impacting the search for oil and gas? 
Yeah, so if you um maybe a, a little history will help. So so oil was discovered uh, in large quantities on the North Slope at the end of the 60s. Um but uh because of uh lingering unresolved issues around um native Alaskans claims on the land and because of at that time the recent oil spill off Santa Barbara in California um development of of the oil fields there did not go ahead they were mired in legal disputes and environmental disputes uh what changed things was the 1973 oil shock so suddenly it became imperative to develop uh US uh oil resources to help offset the power of OPEC and um and so what you what you saw in 1973 was that congress effectively uh forced the construction of the Trans-Alaska pipeline effectively ended all the legal disputes via an act of congress um and the building of that pipeline which takes oil from the north slope down to Valdez on Alaska's ice-free uh southern coast um that enabled development and so you you see although Alaskan oil is not necessarily the cheapest or the easiest to get there is a lot of it and it's on home turf so strategic considerations uh allowed for its development and in some ways we're seeing a bit of that again uh today um you know if you think about where oil development is on on uh, uh on the Alaskan North Slope now you know we've we've really had several decades of decline in Alaska it used to be producing more than 2 million barrels a day it's now down to about 400 thousand or so barrels a day um uh but we saw uh Pr- president biden's administration recently approved the willow project their highly controversial project um certainly the biden administration's body language was that it didn't really want to approve it but uh, i think um russia's invasion of ukraine and what that did to energy markets last year change the equation uh, in in kind of an echo of what happened in the early 1970s. Bloomberg opinion columnist Liam Denning on the booms and busts of drilling for oil in Alaska uh, that it does seem like a pendulum swinging there Liam and there's plenty of oil and gas in the Arctic there's also this very loud argument for leaving it there which makes perfect sense but is anybody listening to that because even if president Biden who as you described didn't seem like he 100% wanted to and still yet said okay let's just go ahead and do it is there a race to drill there is there an overwhelming necessity is it the lesser of two evils walk me through that so i think is it's that is the the absolutely central question about all of this i think the first thing to say is that when although there is a lot of oil and gas believed to be under the arctic and not not just in you know under us territory but obviously also under russia uh canada norway uh, other arctic uh, countries um i'm very skeptical whenever people talk about a scramble for anything in the arctic because nothing happens there quickly um because of the harsh environment because of the remoteness you know just to give you a sense um most of the oil and gas that's believed to be in um uh under Alaska is is actually under the waters um offshore um a lot of that hasn't been developed because it's very hard to develop 
oil and gas in a sea where, you know, suddenly everything freezes up and your platform is surrounded by ice. Um, I, I did see from the air one one project there, the North Star project, it's just off the coast near Prudhoe Bay. From awarding the lease to the first barrel of oil being produced from that field, it took 22 years. Wow. And most companies simply cannot take that kind of duration risk or the cost involved to, to do that. So I think the first thing to say is there's unlikely to be a scramble for oil and gas in the Arctic just because it, it's too hard to do anything and it takes too long. Now, on the on the other question of, you know, why would we develop it at all when we're staring down the barrel of climate change? I think Alaska symbolizes, you know, a, a broader issue for, for all major energy consuming countries, um, which is balancing that need to address this, this inexorable issue of climate change with immediate issues of energy security. And so, you know, just taking it back to President Biden and Willow, um, you know, last year when oil prices spiked on the back of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, we saw in nominal terms, we saw the highest um, average gasoline prices this country has ever seen. Right. Uh, and in response, uh, the president released barrels, 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, I think it would have been very difficult politically, at least, for him to then turn around and say, well, we need to release these emergency barrels to deal with our um, immediate needs, but I'm not going to approve this project that actually provides US-based oil uh, to meet our country's needs. Um, and I think, you know, Willow isn't going to be the last time that we face that dilemma because the fact is we have a system right now that, we, that is still overwhelmingly dependent on fossil fuels. Their share of our energy system is coming down, but it's coming down pretty gradually. And, and really, when we talk about you know an energy transition, the main thing we need to transition is our demand, is, is how do we use energy? You know, if you cut off oil supply and cause prices to spike, yes, you will um, you'll cause people to change their behavior, but in a very disruptive and importantly, politically unhelpful way. And, and, you know, even for a president like Joe Biden, who wants to transform the economy in a decarbonized way, he has to consider, you know, how elections are going to go every two years in order to keep that project going. Liam Denning is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He covers energy and commodities. Want you to stay with us. We're going to leave the frosty cold temperatures of the Arctic for the scorching heat of this summer travel season. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris, and we are deep into the summer travel season. Higher prices don't seem to be slowing anyone down. Families are packing up the car. Couples are booking the flights. And the next few months are expected to be a blowout for jet setting. But maybe you want to enjoy it while it lasts. 
because this could all be a prelude to customers reigning in their wanderlust. We welcome Bloomberg Opinion columnist Andrea Felstead, who covers consumer goods and the retail industry. Andrea, tell us what you found, because right now it looks like nothing is stopping us. We've got all this pent-up vacation time energy, and we have to burn it. That's right. That is still the case. I mean, you know, travel is still very much in demand. Um, Some research from PwC earlier in the year found that, you know, customers would cut back on like many, many other things before they cut back on the holiday. That being said, we are starting to see a few little indications of cracks in that demand. Now, PwC did some follow-up research in June, and it's really interesting because one of the things they've noticed is that um, Britons are booking later. I mean, this has been a trend ever since the pandemic that people hold off from booking later. So it has been a it has been an ongoing trend, but you would think by now it would start to normalise. What we've seen is actually the the opposite, that we're starting to see more late booking. And this is because um, of uncertainty over household finances. I mean, as in the US, you know, also in Britain, we, we've had like, you know, cost of living crisis. We've had uh, high energy, food bills. They are starting to sort of moderate a little bit. The thing that is now coming up that is worrying consumer goods companies it is is the interest rate environment. You've got a million people who need to refinance their um, mortgage this year. They're facing significantly higher costs. And so, you know, some of them are actually waiting to see um if they should book the holiday. The other thing is, and this is the case in the US, there was also some research from destination analysts, and we've seen a similar thing in the US about sticker shock for prices. You know, you you probably noticed that holidays have gone up, you know, holidays and flights have become much more expensive. And some consumers are holding off to see, can I afford to go away? And will the price come down? They're, They're waiting, you know, perhaps you know, a last minute deal or they're saving up to book. They're also um, say waiting because last year and and we, we, I think in the US you've had some this year. Um, but in, in Europe last year, we had really bad disruption to travel. So some people are waiting to see if there's going to be a repeat of that this year before they book their holidays. I, I wanted to ask you about that. I remember last year, the all the delays and the canceled flights. I actually wound up getting tangled up in all of that. It was a nightmare. So, um, and just to rebook a flight. So my question is, number one, did that damage that relationship? Is that part of the reason why people are kind of holding back from booking these flights? Because there's a little trust issue there. And number two... Is all of this something we sort of view through the lens of the pandemic? Is that the yardstick now that we are measuring all of this by pre-pandemic and post-pandemic? Exactly. Um, So 13% of the people that were holding off from uh, traveling, according to PwC, was in case, sorry, 17% was if there is disruption, 13% was if there are travel restrictions. Mm. But so 17% of the people that that haven't booked are doing so because they're waiting to see whether there is that disruption. It's definitely worrying people. In Europe, it does seem like it's calmed down this year. So that might encourage people to to book. And in terms of the question about the pandemic, yes, um, we are seeing all this from the lens of the pandemic. We were all cooped up, locked down. We couldn't travel. And because of that, 
people really valued their travel. So um, they're sort of signs that they're not spending as much on experience uh, on things, but they're spending more on experiences, meals out, travel. And when I was re- researching my column on um, where interest rates would hit people, a few people I spoke to said anywhere but travel but it does seem even within the confines of that that there are some cracks emerging and and some people are being a little bit more cautious with travel i think this summer will still be a really really good for the industry lots of people are booked they're prepared to pay but i think going forward that the, the autumn winter season uh, and into next summer we, we may see you know that might not be quite as strong and we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Andrea Felstead about how travel may not be the same after this summer. What are you seeing as far as the impact on the travel industry? Are they feeling it? Are they buckling up for what may be to come? Um, are they kind of <laughs> enjoying all the tickets and all They're the traveling definitely. now? They're definitely enjoying all the ticket prices and the holiday prices now. But but this PwC research also had some quite interesting um, factors and also some other um, t- tour operators were talking about some some slight impacts that we're seeing. Um, so um, the, the Thomas Cook, um, which is is now an online uh, a travel travel uh, travel company, they found that there was a bit of change in what people were booking. They were um, they were maybe going for different destinations, so they were maybe choosing slightly cheaper destinations. So they were going to like mainland Spain, um, which is perhaps a bit cheaper. It's around twenty percent cheaper than the Balearic Islands or the Canary Islands. Um, so so they're, they're, they're still going somewhere that's lots of family fun, but, but it's cheaper. The other thing we are seeing, um, and this was in the um, in some of the short-term holiday lets from uh, AirDNA, which tracks the market, is that they're seeing quite a lot of bookings for September and October. So because of the prices are so high for the summer, they're extending through to um, to those later months. We're also seeing this in the States as well. There was some research from destination analysts that also found that those shoulder months were um, were, were quite popular. I can I can vouch for that. Summer I was not able to travel because of the price, so I extended yeah. it out to to September. And instead of booking yeah. a whole week, I just booked a fat weekend. <laughs> you know exactly. That's exactly what we'll see. We'll see. Um, you know people trading down from um from uh weeks to to weekends but then saying that pwc sort of um uh sort of um also surveyed uh, travel operators and the one area they were less concerned about they were most optimistic about was the luxury and high end because you know, as we've seen in the luxury industry, wealthier people are hit less by everyday costs. And so they can still afford to travel. So it will be in that mid-market to value end that, that we might see some of these changes. Andrea, before we let you go, let me ask you about how long it may take before we get back to normal or... Is there a normal anymore? Do we have a new baseline because of the pandemic and all of the commotion and chaos that it has caused within not just our own personal lives and our paychecks and the way we spend our leisure time, but the travel industry as well? Is this a new normal? 
Yes, I think it is a new new normal and it all comes back to how much we miss travel during the pandemic. Mm. So even if things slow down, there will still be an element, I think, of prioritising travel over other things uh, because we were also cooped up. Uh, That's that that having said that we'll have had two good years of travel so perhaps next year it might not be such a priority i still think it will be quite a priority maybe not quite as much andrea felstead is a bloomberg opinion columnist who covers consumer goods and the retail industry and don't forget we're available as a podcast on apple spotify or your favorite podcast platform and we're learning more about ross perot jr of dallas looking to bankroll a new cricket league in america and as it turns out This isn't the first time we've seen a Texas billionaire looking to launch a new cricket league in the U.S. Joining us now to talk it through, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Ghosh. Bobby covers foreign affairs, and he's going to help us out with this. Okay, Bobby, what is the plan? Ross Perot Jr. and a bunch of Indian tech uh, leaders, including Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, are all bankrolling to the tune of $120 million Major League Cricket, America's first big attempt to create a proper cricketing league. Uh, It uh, kicks off, uh, if that's the right expression, Mm -hmm. on Friday, uh, July the 13th, uh, in Dallas, Texas, at a a cricket stadium, America's first proper cricket stadium. And uh, it will feature six teams and uh, made up primarily of uh, players of Indian origin, Indian or subcontinental origin, although there is a fair smattering of Australians and Englishmen and people from the Caribbean in those teams. So this is a big gamble on on cricket taking root in America, uh, but it's not predicated on cricket becoming an American sport to challenge, let's say, baseball, which is its distant cousin, uh, or football or any other major American sport. This one is directed primarily at the diasporas from countries where cricket was already a passion, and primarily the Indian diaspora. Okay, let's dig into that. We want to start off with um, the history of this. We've seen this before, haven't we? Well, yes. Uh, About a decade ago, uh, another Texas billionaire, Alan Stanford, talked up uh, a big plan to uh, support cricket in uh, the United States. He had uh, a, a business. He was a wealth manager based in Antigua in the Caribbean, where cricket was pretty big. And he caught the bug and he felt like he could bring that sport to the United States. Of course, Famously, he then got caught essentially running a Ponzi scheme and was sent to jail for 110 years. And and his dreams of bringing cricket to America sort of went by the wayside. This time, I think it's a little more realistic because a great deal has changed in that 10-year period, including the size and, more importantly, perhaps the wealth of the Indian immigrant community. There are now 2.7 to 3 million Indian immigrants in this country. They are the most wealthy uh, of all the many diasporas in America. Um, and that makes, and they come preloaded with cricket. I mean, I am Indian American myself. I grew up in India. Um, and if you did, then you you were already programmed to love cricket and to be passionate about it. Um, and and that's what the founders of this new league are counting on. They're counting on people like me 
to watch on television, to to pay uh, for tickets to go and wa- uh, see games at stadiums, um, and and bring our passion, and maybe along the way convert one of uh, one or two of our non cricketing American friends uh, into the sport. Okay, so you are already a fan, like you say, it's already baked into you and and those around you. So do you feel like this has a shot? Are people going to support this? Is there any risk that it may somehow, and I hope you follow what I mean when I say this, somehow be corrupted by being Americanized? There's not much uh, risk of that because... The Americanization of cricket, ironically, has already happened. It happened, strangely enough, in India. When a big cricket league, uh, it's called the IPL, the Indian Premier League, was launched eight or nine years ago in India, it was done specifically with very American-style hoopla. Indian cricket teams, in fact, some of them actually employed American cheerleaders to go over and teach Indians how to do cheerleading. So if you like, the Americanization of cricket has already happened. It's the question of the cricketization of America now. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Okay, so uh, uh, help me figure out how this is going to work. Why Perot? Why cricket? How how is this going to work financially? So most of the 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 founders, most of the sponsors and, and owners of teams uh, of the six teams are Indians and Indian Americans. Ross Perot is kind of the odd man out because his business partner is Indian and and sort of, if you like, uh, inculcated him into the culture of cricket. And he sort of he recognized not only the passion that Indian Americans bring to the sport, but he also, as a good businessman, saw a business opportunity. There's a very large Indian. Um, and South Asian generally community in the Texas Fort Worth area, um, and he saw the opportunity. There was a uh, a chance to get in on the ground floor of what could become uh, the next soccer over maybe twenty thirty years. And uh, you know, we we follow the arc of how soccer evolved in this country from a from a niche sport into something more substantial. Uh, he's counting on cricket doing the same thing, riding on the back, just as soccer sort of rode on the passion of Latin American communities living in the United States. He's counting on cricket doing the same on the back of Indian Americans, Pakistani Americans, British Americans, Australian Americans, uh, and Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean Americans. Um, All of these communities, if you add them all up, we're talking about anywhere between 10 and 20 million people, which is not a small number. Can you compare it with anything in the U.S.? I don't mean the sport itself, but the passion. Like all passions, you know, sports fans are, are, are nuts about their sport. With Indians and cricket, it's a, I would argue it's a little more intense because in India, cricket is not just the most popular sport, but it's almost cultural in a way that I suppose once upon a time, baseball used to be in America. America has many different sporting passions. There's baseball, there's football, there's um, hockey, there's basketball. These are big sports with with big followings. Americans uh, interested in sports can choose from several. In India, until fairly recently, cricket was almost literally the only game in town. Um, a friend of mine, a sports journalist back in India, used to say, if you count the top 10 most popular sports in in India, one through nine are cricket. And so <laughs> Indians are single-minded in their passion for cricket because for a very long time, they really didn't have success in any other sporting arena. Um, that makes it, and don't forget, there's a billion plus in billion and, and, and a quarter billion 
1.4 billion Indians. And and so um, it's the single largest, most populated country in the world now. Um, so that's a big number. The promoters of Major League Cricket in the United States are also counting on Indians back in India to watch on television. So the television rights, the advertising potential that comes from such a big potential television audience, all of those factor into the chances of this becoming a success. That's what I wanted to ask you about. But it occurs to me that um, this particular endeavor, they don't care whether somebody like me, like I'm a big football fan, right? So um, I don't, I've never seen cricket in my life. I, I would be interested in learning because I dig sports, but I'm not the audience. Yeah. And I wonder if you were to indoctrinate me or to bring me along or to help sort of teach me the way, <laughs> what should we look for in a typical <laughs> cricket match? What's exciting? Well, cricket comes in very, very different formats, and, and the longest format was stretched over five days. The good news is this is not that. This is a, a short format called T20. It takes about the same. Uh, it takes about the same amount of time of your average baseball game. So it's a short version of the sport. It's a nice afternoon or nice evening out. You, uh, the ticket prices at the stadiums will be quite low, $20, $30. Um, you know, you, you, there will be some bleacher seating, but there will also be some seating on the grass. And, and you, can, you can bring a picnic basket and have a lovely day. And, and the, the, the sponsors and the promoters will make special effort to try and educate a non-cricketing audience. Ah. But they're being realistic. They realize that this ain't happening overnight. I mean, look how long it took for soccer to take root in this country. And soccer is a much simpler uh, sport for uh, a newbie to absorb. Cricket is, let's be clear, very complex and has lots of rules. And some of those rules are not intuitive and don't make sense. So it'll be a long time, 20, 30, 40 years before, realistically, if ever, uh, Americans who didn't have cricket in their in their blood, so to speak, take to the sport. But the important point is, that for MLC to be a success, that doesn't have to happen. As long as there are sufficient numbers of diaspora and as long as there is a big television audience who can who buy into this, that's going to be good enough. Thank you so much, Bobby Ghosh, and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers foreign affairs. Bloomberg Opinion continues with yet one more reason why maybe we should all lay off the sugar, especially if it's in the form of a diet soda. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. The World Health Organization has classified aspartame as a possible carcinogen last week. But even before that ruling, there were already some pretty good reasons to avoid products that contain the artificial sweetener. Joining us now, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam. Faye, just bottom line this for us, what does this mean for diet soda drinkers? Well, I was actually kind of surprised it wasn't already on this list of possible carcinogens because that includes anything where there's even you know, a, a few studies where a rat got cancer, um, the radiation from your cell phone, uh, WHO considers a possible carcinogen. So sometimes something that's just where there's a, a health scare and a lot of studies are done, you know, inevitably, some rat gets cancer somewhere, and that can get on this list. So 
I don't consider that list to be, you know, a, a, a reason necessarily to avoid something. Um, but it, I think it does raise a little bit of awareness that these sweeteners are, you know, they're they're unnatural chemicals. And some people really drink a lot of diet soda. So is that something we should keep in perspective then when you were talking about the term possible carcinogen, what actually that would mean? Yeah, I mean, it means that a few studies have hinted that there might be a link with some cancers. I think in this case, it's mostly animal studies. I don't think there are any human epidemiological studies that show that humans who drink diet soda are more likely to get cancer. But what, so what fascinated me was that there are some human studies that show different health harms and problems with diet soda, including some that may explain why people often don't lose weight when they switch diet soda. I wanted to actually ask about that. Uh, since aspartame has been introduced in the diet, uh, particularly in the United States, have we seen improvements in health, less diabetes, lower obesity rates? No, <laughs> no, not at all. And it didn't seem to help uh, lower blood sugar. The thing is that people would go for diet soda for the reasons people usually would choose those is because they think, well, they're not fattening. They're not going to raise my blood sugar. I'm not going to they're not going to raise my risk of getting type two type two diabetes. Did they compare anything else? I'm just assuming that they did. But I'm curious how aspartame may be different from other artificial sweeteners like saccharin or stevia or even natural ones like honey or agave syrup. Yeah, well, the, the study that I wrote about that I thought was fascinating, they actually looked at four sweeteners. They looked at saccharin, sucralose, aspartame, and um, stevia. Mm. They did look at these natural ones, which I think act a lot more like sugar. You know, they're very similar to sugar. They're chemically similar. These, 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 the four that they studied were just chemically distinct from sugar. So um, they found that they, it, within a, a couple of weeks, they actually had an effect on the, um, your microbiome, the, the uh, bacteria, the friendly bacteria that help you digest your food and live in your gut, that they seem to have a, an effect on that. And it looks like the artificial sweeteners actually have an adverse effect on blood sugar control. And blood sugar control is a big factor in obesity and type 2 diabetes. So um, apparently these artificial sweeteners can actually have some of the same types of harmful effects as sugar. Bottom line is perhaps just getting rid of those diet colas out of your diet if what you're trying to do is lose weight and watch your sugar intake. Yeah, you know, I think, well, the, the, this researcher said he drinks water. I like coffee, iced coffee. Um, there have been a lot of studies on that. And so far, uh, nothing really harmful has turned up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess it all depends on how much sugar you put in that iced coffee. <laughs> but at least you have the option to put either none or very little in. Whereas when you reach for a Coke, it's going to have either, it's either going to have a lot of sugar or if you go with a diet, it's going to have the aspartame in it. Faith Flam is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Follow the Science podcast. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Mollo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.